And so, Lord God, we do pray that. We ask that you would be our vision, and we know that you became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. So, Jesus, we pray that you would be our vision. You would help us to see, and you would help us to see you, to look at you standing there and to think to ourselves, hey, that's me. I'm the body of Christ. Help us, Lord Jesus, to preach. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Two weeks ago, uh, we read how Jesus was uh, baptized in the Spirit, and he heard the word, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then we read how the devil tempted Jesus to use the word, but Jesus surrendered to the Spirit in the word and conquered the devil. Then we read Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I, I think that's meant to be like a summary of all of Jesus' preaching, or at least what he's gonna say in the next few chapters. Uh, last week, we then read how he called his first four disciples, and then we read this. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and, and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. He's fulfilling prophecies like Isaiah 53 and 61, which then Matthew will go on to describe in his gospel. And it's all, it's beautiful. On numerous occasions, I've witnessed people delivered of demonic oppression. And I gotta tell you that at first, it's terrifying. And then it is just absolutely beautiful. Now some of you may think I'm nuts because you haven't seen something like that. But if you would have seen what I have seen, you wouldn't think I'm nuts and you would think oh, that, that's beautiful. On numerous occasions I've seen people delivered and on a few occasions I've witnessed healings that I just couldn't deny. I've witnessed healings and I've even been healed. It was utterly amazing and yet it's still for me rather embarrassing. It was my leg. I let this woman pray for me in college because I had a sore back. She set me in a, in a chair and prayed that my leg would grow. One was a little bit shorter, but you know, that's normal with tendons and all that stuff. She prayed that it, it, would, it would grow. I locked my butt in the seat, I remember, and made sure that she didn't pull my leg. And as soon as she started to pray, it felt like this leg just turned to like hot plastic and shot out. I jumped up in the chair thinking she grew it too long. Then she had to grow the other leg and the other leg and the other leg and I'd look like a freaking giraffe or something. <laughs> something. It's embarrassing because I know that people fake stuff like that. That's a classic faker. But I felt it. It's embarrassing because they fake it, and I know there are people with real needs far more important than that. But I felt like God was saying, Peter, you just need to know I can do that. It's embarrassing and frustrating because I love that, but I don't know how to make God do that. And yet, it seems that he wanted me to know, Peter, I can do that. And I can also not do that because I want to do even more. Well, anyway, Jesus was doing that. All the afflicted, healed of every ailment. There would come a day 
when he wasn't doing that. But he was doing that, and it was beautiful. Where there was once poverty and sorrow, weakness and sin, there was now this great beauty. Kind of like this bouquet of flowers right here on the communion table. Beautiful. Kind of like that crowd of people that swarmed around him that day. You know, when people get famous, we often hand them a bouquet of flowers. Verse 24, his fame spread. Verse 25, great crowds followed him. Jesus got famous. And the crowd was like a bouquet of flowers. Next verse. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are these crowds. Blessed are the prosperous, because I just, I made them rich. Blessed are the cheerful, for I just healed them. Blessed are those who name it and claim it, because they're going to get it. Blessed are the righteous, you can tell who they are, because I just blessed them. Duh! Well, maybe not so much. What did he say? Verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, you just witnessed the blessing. And now I'm offering a four-week intensive course on deliverance, healing, prayer, and how to get your blessing. (laughs) But he didn't really say that either. You know, I've scoured the Bible looking for how-to courses on deliverance and healing and things like how to hear God's voice, but I haven't found anything like a how-to course. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed, blessed, blessed are the rich, the cheerful, the assertive, the self-actualized believers in the kingdom of America who live the American dream. Well, that's not right either. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, now, now I hope that this is a little bit bizarre and shocking to you, because you see, I think it was utterly bizarre and shocking to those people that day on the side of the, of the mountain. In fact, I don't think they would have listened to at all except that Jesus had just healed them all. So let's take them one by one, the Beatitudes, the blessings. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs. Now, literally translated, if you look like in an interlinear, it'll say of them because that's what he said. Of them is the kingdom of heaven. Tokos, translated poor, means something like destitute. Matthew uses that word to translate the Hebrew word anav when he records Jesus quoting Isaiah 61, explaining what he's doing to John. It it means something like the poor, the weak, uh, the the afflicted. In Matthew 11.5, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 and and, and tells John the Baptist, the poor... Anav, people that basically have bad stuff happen to them, Anav, have good news preached to them. Blessed is he that's not offended at me. (laughs) Why would we be offended? Well, maybe because we don't want him to say, blessed are the poor. 
I mean, that's not good news, right? We prefer that he said, blessed are the rich who used to be poor. I mean, that sounds like, like good news, but that's not what Jesus says. Scholars, Bible teachers, preachers, they argue about what Jesus does say. Does he mean blessed are those poor in spirit, those without much spirit? You know, Jesus was just baptized in the spirit, and each one of us is spirit breathed into dust, a vessel of dust. Does he mean that, or does mean, Jesus mean something like blessed are those without much of anything, <laughs> who like know that, and they're just cool with that in their spirit. Luke records part of a message that's a lot like this Sermon on the Mount. Um, he pours it in his gospel, and there Jesus just says this, blessed are you poor, just poor, for yours is the kingdom, and then later, but woe, sorrow to you that are rich, for you've received your consolation. Now, that can really mess up any sort of prosperity gospel you're trying to manufacture in your brain, and I think it means that Matthew wasn't trying to soften Jesus' statement in Luke. He's saying the blessed aren't just poor in their bank accounts while they strive to be rich. In other words, the blessed aren't poor people sitting in a slot machine putting one more nickel and they're hoping to be rich. The blessed are poor and content with being poor, like, well, like Jesus or Paul or all the disciples or a steward, or a, or a slave. Now, listen closely, Jesus has no problem with making money. I mean, he's the word, he makes everything, right? He has no problem with making money, he has a problem with keeping money. We keep money to save ourselves from sorrow, and Jesus seems to think that that will, in fact, give us sorrow. Nothing but sorrow, just woe and only woe. The poor, if you think about it, are dependent on others. The rich can be utterly independent of others, and the rich must justify that in front of others. I'm rich. I mean, I'm rich compared to most people in America and the world. I'm rich. And when I encounter the poor, I must justify my riches in order to stay rich and not share them with the poor. Sometimes I, I suppose I shouldn't share, for if a person won't work, they shouldn't eat. Scripture says that. But often I should share and I would share, but I don't share because I don't wanna be poor. In other words, I don't believe Jesus who said blessed are the poor. So instead I think less are the poor and I walk right past people in need. But what if people in need are the only kind of people that there are? Well, I think Jesus means blessed are the poor. We're just cool with being poor. But maybe he also means blessed are those who can't hang on to their spirit. Like when a person <laughs> expires their spirit, ex spiritu. And you know you cannot inspire 
unless you also expire. Whatever the case, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, theirs is, or uh, of them is present tense, theirs is not will be, but is the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> okay, but that's a problem then, right? I mean, if you owned the kingdom of heaven, how could you be poor? That's like saying blessed are the poor because they're like insanely rich. I remember when I was poor, relatively poor. We had one bathroom for five people. I remember sitting on the toilet while Susan did her hair at the sink, Elizabeth on my lap, John playing cars on the floor next to Becky in her car seat. Now we have three bathrooms for two people. And I miss our old bathroom, sitting there all by myself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Number two, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In our culture, people don't really want to be blessed because they've read the Beatitudes and they think blessed means something like pretending to be happy. But in classical Greek, makarios, it often just meant rich and always incredible, incredibly fortunate. In the Koine, the Greek that, that Jesus would have known or, or spoken, it means happy. And not our shallow sort of happy, but deep, rich, abiding, even ecstatic happy. So, so Jesus says happy, are the sad, those who mourn. Happy are the sad. He doesn't say happy will be the sad when they're comforted, but happy are the sad for they will be comforted. And, and Luke, he just basically says happy are the sad now and sad are the happy now. I miss our old bathroom. Do you know what else I miss? I miss these, uh, these nights, our first year that we moved out to L.A. from Colorado, sitting in our crappy little apartment in L.A., when Susan would just fall apart weeping in my arms <laughs> for like an hour, and I would weep in her arms. Well, anyway, how can you be poor yet rich? How can you be sad yet happy. You know, when we're sad, the world says something like this, medicate yourself. Now, I'm not saying that you should never medicate yourself, okay? I think sometimes you should, but Jesus says something pretty different. He says, when sad, be glad. When we're sad, we tend to think something is dreadfully wrong. And Jesus seems to say something might just be profoundly right. So, so, so maybe we should be sad for what seems right is deeply wrong and we can't truly be glad until we acknowledge the sad. I mean, maybe there's something that we all need to, to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Someone said they better inherit it because that's the only way they're going to get it. 
But what if that's the only way that you can get anything? It's not just secular biologists, but most people, including Christians, maybe even especially Christians, that think life is the survival of the fittest. And you see, if that's true, poverty, sorrow, and meekness are an absolute curse because the meek will not survive. Well, Jesus seems to think that life is not the survival of the fittest, but something more like the sacrifice of the fittest. It's not about seizing control of another entity, but more like uh, sacrificing for or serving another entity, like one cell serving another cell in, in, in a body. And if you see that's the case, perhaps poverty, sorrow, and meekness would, would be more than simply a curse, but it would be like a, a, an offhanded, weird kind of blessing. Uh, those things would be like the first step into a great dance, while asserting yourself would keep you from ever joining the dance in the first place. I mean, that's, that's a little surprising when you think about it. And if it's true that the meek, okay, listen closely, if it's true that the meek really do inherit the earth, that means that they take nothing and yet receive everything. For the meek, everything is grace. Is it possible to take nothing and receive everything? Is it possible to be humble and exalted all at the same time? I mean, to be last and also first, or first and also last, last and first, to be sad but happy, to be poor but rich, rich and wonderfully poor. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness means rightness. It's when things are are right. He didn't say blessed are the right, but blessed are those who hunger for the right, which implies sad are those that think they are right and that this world is right. Because you can't hunger for the right unless you think something is, is wrong. In fact, unless you feel something is wrong, like down in your gut, you hunger for the right. And this is what's so bizarre about the Beatitudes. How could something be wrong when everything looks so right? Jesus, just look at the crowds. You just healed everybody. You just healed every body, every body. You just healed everybody. Just look at, the, look at that bouquet of flowers. What is wrong with that bouquet of flowers? What's wrong with those flowers? Answer? They're dead. Or good is dead. I think according to the right definition, they are dead. Jesus, just look at that incredible crowd. I mean, what is wrong with that crowd? Answer, they're dead. They're good as dead. They they look alive, but but they're dead. Did Did you know 
that some of the world's greatest scientists and theologians and Bible scholars have researched this extensively, and they've come to this unanimous conclusion that every one of those people that Jesus healed uh, back at the start of his ministry in, the, in that crowd, every one of them that he healed, everyone in the crowd died? 100%! I mean, that, that means, oh yeah, sure, you heal them, but they all died, they're all dead, they died! According to St. Paul, it wasn't because it was because they were already they were already dead, which means the healing, you see, I don't think it was really the substance. It was the sign. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus heals everybody but one body. And that's his body. You understand? Like we said last week, Jesus is fixing to turn everybody in that crowd into his kingdom, and his kingdom is his body. His kingdom is his body. How, how will they become his body? Is he going to eat them? That's how we make things our body. We break another body, and we eat it. It's called food. Is he going to eat them or allow himself to be eaten? Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I hope you see the, the problem here. Each flower looks alive. This, this flower looks alive, but it's not alive because it's not connected to its source the sun, the rain, the root, the bush, and every other flower on the bush. Each, each flower is almost like a, a severed body part sitting here in, in a basket. Each person in the crowd looks alive, but really isn't alive. They have a bit of life. They, they possess, they possess a bit of, of, of life. You know, they got their miracle, and, and I mean, it was a miracle. They got a, a bit of life, but they're still severed from their source and still severed from each other. In other words, they don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and they don't love their neighbor as themselves because they don't yet understand and trust that their neighbor is themselves. A body. They don't believe, they don't trust. That's what faith means, trust, that they are one body. Scripture tells us that we are one body. And with this knowledge, this knowledge of the good and, and the evil, the good one body, the evil a severed body, with this knowledge of good and evil, we often invent religion. We think it's an assignment in order to make one body, that we need to make one body. So at the fourth beatitude, we realize we don't love and we should love, so we try to make things right by turning love into a law. We say, yeah, you should give. You should sign up for camp. You should serve. You should put more money in the offering plate. You, sh you should repent. You should, you should love. We try to tape all the flowers together and make the rose bush live. Last week we said the crowd is a cancer. The kingdom is a body. The crowd makes everyone the same and everyone empty. Remember, like a stack of envelopes. So when we first learn of the kingdom, what do we do? Well, I think we take the envelopes and we, we label them. Maybe we write on one of them head or pastor or leader. 
president on, on one envelope, and, and then on another envelope, hand or deacon, laborer on another envelope. We label the envelopes, and then we try to, we try to tape them all together so they look like, they look like a body. Now, I, I did that in advance, so it wouldn't take time, but, but we do something like this, and we say, hey, look, that's the kingdom. That's the, that's the body of Christ. Join it or die. We say that to people that are already dead. I'll put that right there. We think, we think that that's, that's right. But, but it's not right. It, it's wrong. It's a lie that we label as the way, the truth, and the life, the revelation of love, the body of Christ. But it's not the body of Christ. It's an imitation Christ. In Greek, the word is antichrist, antichristos. We, we even say, join it before you die. We say that to people that are already dead. Join it before you die or you will never live. There will be no mercy. Number five, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. You know, to give mercy is to bleed for someone that you love. The spirit, the breath, the life is in the blood. That's what Scripture says. To give mercy is also to forgive. And as we preached a hundred times, unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin. Jesus taught, unless you forgive, you, well, you can't be forgiven. And yet God's forgiveness is not dependent on your ability to forgive. In other words, God does not commit the unforgivable sin. Jesus said, unless you forgive, you cannot be forgiven. God's forgiveness is not dependent on your ability to forgive. And yet you can't forgive unless you, in fact, do forgive. I mean, that, that only makes sense to me if forgiveness is like a, a reality or like a, an ocean or like a river that you jump into or maybe a river that you fall into, a river that sweeps you away. Forgiveness is the river of, of life. Last time we said that your soul, your individual psyche, is like an, an envelope. But, but, but an envelope is like a it's, it's a, it's a container, right? You, you put something in it and then you seal it, like you, you put the word in it, a letter. Like you put your miracle in it or you put the spirit in it. We, we think of it like an, a container, but what if you took what if you, t sorry, Antichrist, but let me take one. What if you took an envelope and you, and you circumcised it? Does it bother you that I use biblical terminology in my snip, snip, snip in my sermon? Yeah. What if you did that? Well, this formerly closed vessel would now be an open vessel. vessel. It could, like, receive the river of life because it constantly bled the river of life. It could constantly, the word forgive means let, in, in, but, but it could constantly forgive the river of life even as it received the river of life. 
constantly bleeding the river, constantly receiving the river. Not my miracle, but a far bigger miracle. Not a container for life, but a conduit for the life. The spirit, the breath, is life, says scripture, and the life is in the blood, a river of life. If you were a healthy blood vessel in a body, and by healthy I mean not full of yourself, but empty, in a healthy body you would be constantly poor in spirit, constantly surrendering the life, which would also be constantly receiving the life. I mean, you would be poor and at the same time rich in spirit, with spirit, but not simply your own spirit, your own life, but the life of the entire, the entire body. All your, your mourning would turn into dancing. All your sorrow would literally turn into joy because losing your life would also be finding your life. It would be one. You would take nothing but receive everything. You would receive everything pumped into you from this incredible heart at the center of the body, constantly thirsty for the right and constantly satisfied with righteousness, constantly bleeding, constantly loving, constantly losing your life and finding your life in this one incredible body of absolute love. If you took the life as if it were your own, you know, and sealed the envelope. Well, you damn the river and damn the life because you would call it your life and everything would die. But if you gave the life, for you knew that you were constantly given the life, everything would live. And check this out if you were here last week. You wouldn't be less yourself because I think that's what we're afraid of you'd be more yourself. Just as a a finger is more itself when it's attached to a body and less itself if I were to cut it off and throw it in a basket. Attached to the body, it constantly gives life and, and finds life. The decision to give life rather than damn the life is called love. Love, well, it's a noun and a verb, but the verb is a decision. It's a decision to to bleed. That's the good. That's the right love. And God is love. Love is not a law. Love is the judgment of God. Love is life. Number five, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, God said to Moses, Moses, um, the Adam, ha-adam, man, shall not see my face and live. But in the New Jerusalem that we studied, we read that we will see his face and, and we will live, according to Scripture. So the pure in heart somehow die and yet live because all they want to see is God. Love, life. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, cleanliness of heart or purity of heart is to will one thing. And along with Jesus, he taught that willing one thing is freedom. If love is a law that you must make yourself obey, you're not free. The moment I think I should love, it reveals that part of me doesn't love and I'm trying to force it to love in order to save me from love because I don't love love. I'm terrified of love. A part of me hates love. 
If for me love is a law, it reveals that my heart is divided. So at least part of me doesn't love love. Instead, it uses knowledge of love to fake love in order to gain life, unaware that life is love. Now, you should go back, get the transcript of the sermon, analyze that sentence, and I think it will help you quite a bit. But, but right now, this is important to know. God is love. And in every heart, in every psyche, in every soul, there's a throne. To surrender that throne is to die to yourself, your, your psyche, and yet live is to find yourself. And it's to live free, free of the illusions that once imprisoned you and free to do what you want to do for all you want to do is what God wants to do and what God wants to do is called reality. <laughs> That's pretty free. In communion with love, you create reality. Love doesn't seize the throne. Love romances the throne because love wants to reign in you and with you undivided in freedom. When love reigns in all the members of his body, God's body, love's body, those members are no longer taped together from the outside with laws. Those members are unified from the inside with love. Like your brain unifies the movements in your body, like music coordinates and animates the body of a dancer, that music is the logic, logos, of love. The, the logos of love is the word of God who makes us in his own image and likeness the prince of peace. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the peacemaker. We are his body. And how does he make peace? That is, shalom is the Hebrew word. The Sabbath rest. The seventh day. Number eight. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Literally, of them is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the eighth beatitude. In Jewish thought, the eighth is an endless seventh. And this also forms what scholars call an inclusio. That's why I wrote it out uh, like that. It includes all that's in between, creation, and the last is the first, and the first is the last. Just like the first beatitude, this last beatitude takes this unusual form. Not simply theirs is the kingdom, but of them is the kingdom. Of open vessels consists a living body. Of open vessels, constantly poor and exceedingly rich, consists a living body, for through them passes the river of life. Of open vessels that choose to give life for the sake of righteousness consists the body of Christ. Of, of the blessed consists the kingdom of, of heaven. And who is the cornerstone? Who's the most blessed? Well, Jesus is the blessed. We read that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's the first who became last in order that all the last could be first. He's the king and uh, the presence of his kingdom. He's the king of love invading this void of darkness, death, and chaos that we call our world. This is the king having descended into the crowd. This is the rich choosing to bleed for the poor and becoming rich beyond measure. When one loves in a world that doesn't love, looks like a man nailed to a tree that we call a cross. 
persecuted for righteousness' sake. When to love in a world that doesn't love, it looks like a bridegroom and his, his bride in a covenant. When all people love, well, it's the consummated kingdom of God and it looks like a body dancing in absolute joy. It's the body of the resurrected Christ. Jesus is God's decision to love. The biblical word for that is judgment. He is God's judgment of love, invading this world that doesn't love. So how do we love so, and so live as the blessed? Well, Jesus expands on this last beatitude in the most remarkable way. Listen to this. This is so cool, I think. I, I just saw this a few days ago. Blessed are those who are, peacemakers, or who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for of them is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, or that is for my sake. So, so Jesus just said, you're blessed if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, and then you're blessed if you're persecuted for my sake. Jesus just equated himself with righteousness. And if you're a Bible scholar, this is in one of the synoptic gospels where they say, oh, Jesus never, pay attention. He just equated himself with righteousness. That means that Jesus is either, either utterly insane or he is an evil egomaniac or he actually is the judgment of God. St. <laughs> Paul writes, Jesus is our wisdom. We think he's like telling us metaphors or something, but he said, Jesus, he is, God has made him our wisdom, our righteousness, our, sancti our righteousness, our sanctification. That means Jesus is our decision to love, and we are his body. How did we become his body? And how do we become to, how do we come to trust that we are actually his body so that we would live like his body, act like his body? <laughs> Does he eat us? The devil will tell you that, by the way. Does he eat us? No. But he did take bread and break it, saying, look, this is my body. Take it. Eat it. And he took a cup, saying, this is, this is my blood. Take it, drink it. This is me bleeding for you, and now into you, and soon through you, my body. In the morning, on the tree in the garden, he lifted his head and he delivered up his spirit. All four Gospels record it. That's the spirit that falls on the church at Pentecost. And I pray it's the spirit in the word that I'm preaching to you right now. And so, 
Maybe during this sermon you felt a little convicted. So you're sitting there thinking to yourself, dang, Peter, I'm not, I'm not poor in spirit. I'm not mourning this fallen world. I'm not very meek, and I'm really not that hungry or thirsty for righteousness. Now, if you're thinking that, think again. You may still be rich in your bank account, but right now you are poor in spirit. Right now you are mourning the fact that you haven't been mourning. In fact, you feel a little meek or a little powerless. You probably feel a little thirsty for Jesus, your righteousness. So you're convicted by the word, but now be blessed by the word. Because he says, blessed are you, poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, the thirsty. What seems right was wrong, but now look, what's wrong is very right. <laughs> Do you realize that in all these verses we have read these last uh, three weeks, there is only one command the entire time? And it's this one word, repent. And repent does not mean try harder. Repent means change your thinking, change, uh, change your mind. You may have come here today just feeling like a failure. I mean, maybe you had a financial catastrophe this week and you, man, you are feeling really poor. Uh, maybe you're in mourning. Maybe you feel meek. Maybe you, maybe you just feel so sinful. You know, you could hardly get yourself to church and so sinful that you are just desperately thirsty for righteousness. Well, did you hear Jesus? What's wrong is what's right. Repent. Change your thinking. Use your new mind. Repent is the first command. Now listen to the second command. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Now, that's the imperative tense. That's also a command. That's the second command. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets, they left the crowd. They heard the word. They came back to the crowd speaking the word, the, the truth, and they were persecuted. So some of you have come here this morning thinking, you know, I listened to the truth. I followed the word of love instead of listening to the crowd. And it didn't work, because I'm like, I'm getting crucified. <laughs> well, did you hear Jesus? What's wrong is what's right. Repent and rejoice and be glad it's working. This fallen world is, is working. I think Jesus genuinely wants you uh, to just be happy right now. That's why he said blessed. It means happy, and that's why he, he speaks that word blessed. And his word, you see, makes us repent, and his word um, then makes us rejoice. When we repent, we'll rejoice. And when we repent and rejoice, the kingdom will not only be this great, incredible party off somewhere in our future, but the kingdom will begin to manifest right here and right now because of the word. Many years ago, my old little man worked at the front gate of a cemetery. Every week for several years, he would uh, 
receive an envelope, a letter from a woman he didn't know, enclosing a money order and directions to place fresh flowers on the grave of her son. Then one day, a, a limousine pulled up to the gate. Behind the chauffeur in the back seat of the limousine was this frail elderly woman. In her arms, a great heap of cut flowers. I'm Mrs. Adams, she explained. Every week for years, I have been sending you the money order with directions to place flowers on the, son, my, the, the grave, of, on the grave of, of my son. Of course, the flowers weren't really for her son. They were for her, herself. They were an attempt to preserve her own life, as lonely and hellish as it was. I came here today, she continued, because the doctors have let me know that I only have a few weeks left. I wanted to drive here for one last look and to place the flowers myself. You know, you know, ma'am, said, said the little man, I was always sorry you kept sending the money for the flowers. Because, well, the flowers, they just last such a, a little while. And nobody ever could see them or smell them. It, it was a shame. Do you realize what you're saying, said Mrs. Adams? Oh, please, please don't be angry, he, he responded. I belong to a visiting society, state hospitals, insane asylums. People in places like that, well, they dearly love flowers. And they can see them and they can, they can smell them. Lady, there's people in places like that. There ain't nobody in that grave, not, not, not really. Several months later, he was astonished to receive another visit. Doubly astonished because there was no chauffeur this time, and Mrs. Adams sat in the front seat driving her own car. I take the flowers to the people myself, she blurted out. You're right. It does make them happy, and, well, it makes me happy. The doctors don't know what is making me well, but I do. She was blessed. And blessed are you who leave the crowd to hear the word and go back to the crowd. Now, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and place it on the throne in the sanctuary of your heart. What was the point of the sermon? Repent, rejoice. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and in your heart. And so I think this is what he's saying. Repent. That doesn't mean try harder means change the way you're thinking. Because the way I normally think is, well, we're a bunch of individual bodies stuck here together in this room, kind of like flowers in that vase. 
And Jesus is saying, no, don't you understand? You're not a bunch of individual bodies. You're my body. And if you begin to believe that, if you begin to trust that, well, then it will change the way you relate to all these other body parts, <laughs> members of the body. You'll begin to treat them differently, not because you have to, because it's some kind of law, but you will begin to want to. And that want to is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's the king of his kingdom taking his place on the throne, and he would like you to sit there uh, with him. Repent, and then rejoice. Because you have absolutely no idea what God has, how much freedom, how much joy he has planned for you. And you can even begin to experience it now. Repent, rejoice, believe the gospel. That's, that's the point. And if you're down at coffee and you're trying to think of what did I get from the sermon this morning, okay, how about this? And now you think about this. You came to church and, and you saw the Antichrist get circumcised. Now, that's, that's something to think about. Okay, but, but uh, also, before we go, sorry, I couldn't help it. I'm just, this, this me, all right? So, and he's making me more of me, so it's your problem. Um, uh, but members of the prayer team will be down front here. The river symbolizes that flow of blood that's to flow through the body. And let me say this, too. I hope that we pray for healing. Um, I, I, I really, really mean that because I've seen it, and I've also not seen it. I, I, but, so this is, this is my hope. I'm hoping that we would love each other and that we would trust that God is giving us good things all the time. But the one thing that I just can't stand is when people pray for each other for something like healing, and if it doesn't go the way they want, they start to blame each other. Because then we just start cutting off body parts. Um, but let's give each other love no matter what. So if you would like prayer, members of the prayer team are down front. They would love uh, to pray with you. No matter what, we invite you uh, just downstairs after the service. So repent, rejoice, and believe the gospel. Amen. Oh, this too. Can I say this, Vince? Sorry, because that was a great lead-in. But this sermon... This, I, this sermon, I, you can tell, I feel a little passionate about. And that's because I think this is this incredible truth that the church has just forgotten. But it's there like in the church, it's there in the, in the first 400 years of the church in this amazing way when they read the Bible in the original language and people like Gregory of Nyssa and Origen and uh, basically what I was talking about here was the recapitulation theory with Irenaeus. And, um, so what I'm saying, I didn't make this up, okay? <laughs> and it's there in the Bible. And the reason I'm saying all this is that when I preach, I always want to go off on all these trails talking about why I just said was actually true and not something I just made up. But that would make this sermon way too long and complicated. So if you get the transcript, I put a bunch of footnotes in the transcript of things that I didn't have time to say. Or, or, so I'd encourage you to go on, online on the website afterwards. And if you download the transcript, that will probably be up by the end of the week, then you can read uh, those footnotes. Okay. So that was a, that was a parenthetical remark. And now uh, repent, rejoice, and believe the gospel. <laughs>